Tetra was the first site that we introduced the infinite adjust system on the front end. With previous sites, we had what we call a hopscotch or plug and play type of scope housing, where you had to bolt the scope housing to the frame to find the correct location. The Tetra changed that with the infinite adjust system. So now, when you sight in your 20 yard mark, you can really fine tune by sliding the whole scope housing up and down in this channel system. That's probably one of the biggest features to the Tetra. Another key feature of the Tetra is Ninja Star yardage wheel. Getting a better hold on the yardage wheel, especially when you're hunting and you have heavier gloves on. The Tetra does have 100 yard capabilities with the yardage tape and that's to the yard. A couple other key features of the Tetra is you get both third and second axis for even more precision. But one of the key features as far as looks goes is we've updated the front end or the housing of the Tetra. So now you have a brighter, larger uh, scope ring which helps with peep alignment as well as a built-in scope level which is just more secure. The Tetra is available in a fixed frame bracket with, with three different mounting locations as well as a dovetail or tournament edition uh, so you can adjust the distance that the scope housing is away from your bow and the Tetra is also available in three different scope housing sizes. You get an inch and five eighths, an inch and three quarter, as well as a new four pin multiple pin head. All the heads are interchangeable. All the Tetras are compatible with any of our accessories. For more information, you can visit our website at www.hhasports.com. Hello, we're at the 2020 ATA show at uh, Veteran Innovative Products, uh, an all-American made and manufactured broadhead. So we've got a new one for 2020 called the Combat Veteran 4-Blade. As you can see, 4-Blades got a lot of the same high-quality materials we used with our original 2-Blade Veteran, but the Combat Veteran has a different deployment system. How it deploys is you just squeeze a little bit on your main blades, okay, those compress, and then the broadhead opens still has our momentum management compressible blade technology so the cutting diameter is inch and a quarter by two inches on this when deployed uh, in flight it's one inch by inch and a quarter another feature we added this year with these heads uh, is that you can exchange the bone breaching field point tip with a 125 grain setup if you would like so swap the tip out get you 125 grains instead of 100 which is big with those Western hunters. And then it's really simple to lock back in place, roll those blades up, and then it's a click, and another click on the other side. It's completely set in, will not prematurely deploy, will not rattle free, solid containment, 100% deployment every time. So we've made a lot of good adjustments and refinements to it to make sure that it's guaranteed to deploy every single time. So that's what's new for VIP this year. We would like to just take a second to help you make the final decision on your new Kydex holster. We the People offers all American-made holsters designed for everyday carry. Whether it's inside the waistband or outside, these holsters are made with quality and don't break your bank like other high-end holster companies. And plus, they offer free shipping on all orders in the USA. So go have a look, and while you're at it, check out what else they have to offer. Merch link in bio.
All right, folks, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Bucks America podcast. I am your host, Jeff Vance, and tonight's guest is Brian Sparks. He is the, the creator of Lucky Number 7 Deer Sense and Nelson Creek Outdoors LLC. He also has a Facebook group that's up and coming one. It's Deer Sense and Mock Scrapes 101. Now, his mission and his, and his advance are to teach folks on how to properly use deer sense and deer tractants to maximize their exposure throughout the season to how to handle the pre post rut and then the end of the season is this way you're able to capitalize on that monster you've been tracing all year long because we're only got like 80 some days left and we're ready to rock and roll here in the state of wisconsin so brian is also a resident here of wisconsin so we're, we're both excited for september 18th opening day so that should be a fun weekend to see who will capitalizes on their bucks this year so brian why don't you go ahead and take over from here and why don't you tell us a little about yourself well, let's see. I am. Uh, I got into sense. I guess I started off as I'm, I'm. I'm a scientist. I am an electrical engineer by degree, a chemist, and a biomathematician. Um, just by my formal education, and I started off in designing a lot of medical equipment. Okay. Um, I did. Was a contract designer for different. Uh, uh, manufacturers of electronic monitoring equipment, patient monitoring equipment. And uh, that's why I got into, you know, what I was doing first with my electrical engineering degree. And through that process, one of the things that uh, came up quite a bit is you're measuring a lot of, you're doing basically a lot of analysis of different chemicals, even if it's just oxygen, you know, where you're doing a pulse oximetry or something. So I also uh, did additional coursework in uh, a lot of chemistry, and then I also got into cosmetic formulation. Uh, I, I did that for a, a long time. Science is I've done my thing. I've uh, worked with a lot of animals and genetics. Um, worked with uh, uh, the Wisconsin midget white turkey, another another uh, item from Wisconsin, one of the uh, smallest turkey breeds. When the university in Madison there decided to disseminate their flock, I. I actually received the last of the eggs from those and uh, helped another person that received the birds themselves uh, restore that flock. And now you can actually find those in pretty much any poultry catalog. Really and, interesting. I'm kind of curious some more about that bird, but we can that's that we can save that for another podcast. Right. So then from there, um, you know, uh, when I was young, uh, I had a neighbor. Uh, when I was getting to be almost 12 years of age, when you could hunt back then before, you know, you had to be a little older before they let you. And um, I had a neighbor that was a big hunter, a big duck and deer hunter. And uh, so I started actually going along with him hunting and fishing. Uh, before I could even hunt, I'd go along, you know, carry stuff, camp out, uh, do some stuff around the camp. And then as I got older, uh, I became a, a hunter myself. Okay. Started off mostly with, pheasants and rabbits of course we don't have any pheasants in wisconsin anymore but uh and then i moved up to when i was 12 years old i was uh took my hunter safety just before that and then i got into deer hunting that first season as well and that was with uh i'm assuming probably gun over bow i uh, actually started with a bow first okay and then uh so was it just a simple straight up root curve uh, yeah, then it was about a 40 pound fiberglass recurve that uh, the neighbor guy fashioned a site out of a, a pipe stem cleaner for me. Okay. And uh, uh, I'd like to say I harvested a deer with that bow, but I never did. I couldn't hit the broadside of a barn with it. 
Yeah, I'm sure probably difficult because uh, you've been hunting for how many years now? Let's see, I'd be about 38 years then. That's a good chunk of time. So if you had your, you got a wealth of knowledge to be able to talk to people about, especially in the, the Wisconsin area. Now, uh, what? Um, so you so you said you have your background in science, Elvin, and work with that. And the nice thing is, I have uh, my. I'm familiar with this, the that uh, medical engineering device because I I have friends that work for Medtronic and Boston Scientific and and so it's I kind of know a little bit of lingo when it comes down to that. I'm sure you probably worked with those companies in the past. Um, yeah, the Boston Scientific, particularly uh, even in my day job now, I've been in communication with them. I now work actually in the battery field. Fun. That is exciting. That's always something new to new and challenging to do. So then what opened up the door for you to get into deer tractants, deer sense? Well, mostly with my, my background in, in chemistry, um, my daughter was uh, getting old enough to, to start hunting, but she had a project at school. And uh, rather than just, it was for, for learning how to, to about small business. And rather than just, uh, talk about it. I already had another business that I had sold a contract manufacturing company. Um, we just started another small business. And one of the first things we did was a deer mineral product uh, that we still sell today. Um, but I wanted to get her out in the woods and get her interested in things. So we used that class in business in businesses to form a company and actually make a product and go out and test the product and go through all the steps of making a, a successful mineral product. That is pretty special then. And then, uh, as you said, you since the company's still around and so then what, uh, so then I take it, where, where's your daughter at now in, in her career? Um, she graduated from college and now she's uh, living on her grandparents' farm. Um, uh, her grandparents passed away and she inherited the farm and she's living over there. Um, doing some, you know, raising chickens and stuff. Another thing I was big into, which poultry at one time, of course, with the turkeys, I also raised what are called Malaysian Saramas, the, the world's smallest chicken, um, Rapanui's from the Easter Islands, which are a hyper melanotic fowl. Uh, and she's, you know, she got interested in the chicken stuff and that, so she's over there. Um, she doesn't hunt anymore. Um, she kind of has given that up a little bit, but I think that's more because she turns out she's afraid of heights and doesn't like to get up in tear stands. <laughs> well, the nice thing is they make a lot of, well, since she has her own permanent location now, if, they, if she has an opportunity to, to get out of one of those uh, luxury uh, box blinds or just build one, and you can get right back in, in the swing of things. You just got to make sure you get it out there. That was must have been my end goal with my wife to get her a box blind. So this way, then we can walk in out there and spend all day comfortably because she doesn't like it. She doesn't like being cold. So the first half of the season, she's all good to go. You know, we, we plan for the day and how it warms down, warms up and cools down and the, and the changing of the winds. But uh, when it gets colder, that's a little bit more difficult to keep rally because once her nose gets to the point where she can't feel it anymore, it's like, I'm done <laughs> tapping out. And the funny thing is, is that the buck I shot a couple of years ago, if she would have remained in her spot, she would have taken it. She learned her lesson there, probably not. They, they called, I, I have, on my other half is the same way. Um, she doesn't hunt and she hates the cold. She's a, a freezy cat there. So there's no amount of clothing you can put on her in November to make her get out in the woods. <laughs> yeah, we've we've been working with um, hot hands, different items like that. And uh, we bought some heated socks. Those those have been able to to be able to tough through the rut. So that has been a thing. December is kind of off the table because it's a little too cold for. I'm kind of crazy to be able to get out there, 
get out there and do it. And even while well, the county hunting over here, I'll hunt into January too. So those, this past year was quite brutal, especially when we had like two weeks of uh, zero was the high for the day. Uh, it's kind of like me when I go out uh, and Kurt that hunts with me, uh, I work with him and he also works with uh, me with the company a little bit. And he, and he, he does a lot of my filming for my videos um, and he'll uh, come along hunting all the time. He's another one that, you know, it's funny. It'll be 30 degrees out and uh, we'll get done hunting and he'll be telling me, Oh, it got so cold. I had to put the, put the hot hands into my gloves. So my fingers wouldn't freeze. And, you know, how about you, Brian? And yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't need my gloves yet. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I, you know, I have, a, I had a, a friend of mine, Austin Lesser from Utah. He does a lot of backcountry hunting and uh, capturing video and photography and hot hands of his savior when it comes down to keeping his batteries above freezing. So this way they can have a decent battery life. Cause otherwise it, that cold just sucks them out, especially when you're going to be out there from sun up to sundown and you don't know what's all going to happen afterwards. Yep. You know, I can get, you know, most of the lithium batteries really don't like it, you know, minus 20 or something. They're pretty much done for, and you can't charge them below zero Celsius. So, uh, yeah, keeping them warm is uh, definitely a good idea. Oh, yes. Now, uh, so you had the, the mineral product. And so, what's what leapfrog from that? Uh, what was the next thing that you added to your catalog? Well, uh, the problem with the minerals, of course, is they're heavy. Shipping was always a problem with them. We still carry them or sell them, you know, enough of them every year, I guess, to keep them around. But they're not, we're never a huge seller because of the weight. Yeah. Um, and I was always interested in um, basically semiochemical communication between animals, uh, you know, how they communicate with uh, smells and, and, and odors and other chemicals. And so could you break down semiochemicals? Because I'm not familiar with that terminology. Um, semiochemical communication is just communicating through, through chemicals. Um, you know, uh, deer communicate through pheromones, insects, uh, communicate through pheromones, uh, like the bombakill for the moth. It's a famous one there, how moths can attract mates from, from miles away by producing a chemical and, and fanning it into the air with their wings. And, uh, a lot of other animals, even higher organisms, do the same thing, communicate through chemicals. Um, and some chemicals, you know, there's, there's different types of chemicals that some work inside your body, like uh, hormones. Um, then there's pheromones, which work, uh, have a response from one uh, individual to another. Okay. Um, you know, to attract a mate, or there's actually a little crab whose eggs produce a pheromone when they're ready to hatch and causes the the mother crab to flex her abdomen and break to help break the eggs open where they're attached. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of different ways that animals use chemicals and, and that's just kind of the science that covers them all. I got into a little bit more. I basically wanted to see what happened is I had gotten some, I'd used real urine in the past and, and I'd learned that fresh urine was a lot better than, than buying it in the store. And I had actually bought a big brand of uh, synthetic uh, deer scent, a doe and heat scent. Okay. And I analyzed it to see what was in it. And I was utterly disappointed in what I had bought. So when that happened, I, I figured, you know, with my background, I can do better. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do better. So I started, you know, a lot of the research has already been done. Um, I have access. I'm a credentialed researcher. I can, I can get articles from other scientists and read them. And I 
I acquired as much data that was already out there from other scientists that have done some of these things and uh, just began to pour through it. And that's how I actually started getting into the synthetic sense. Well, that is pretty exciting to have that resources then. So when you begin the process of building synthetic sense, like what are some of your base ingredients that need to go into it to make sense for to, to, to bring the deer in instead of sh scare them away? Because we've all had heard horror stories about big box brands not delivering. Well, that's where it starts getting a little more complex because it, it, it breaks down into two things. First, you know, like humans, we've got a sense of smell. And we can smell things that we recognize. And basically the odor goes into your into your nose and it and it attaches to different receptors. It goes to the mucus receptors, blah, blah, blah. And it goes into your brain and you can identify different things by how they smell. Um, mm -hmm. You can smell uh, tea leaves. You can smell apples. You can smell pumpkins. And you can recognize those things. But smell itself isn't hugely accurate. Um, You've smelled pumpkin lattes every fall here in Wisconsin. We got to suffer the pump, the pumpkin latte, the pumpkin, this, the pumpkin flavored that. Yes. And it contains no pumpkin whatsoever, but it smells and tastes like pumpkin. That's how a lot of chemicals are, are, are taken in. They're not, it's not an exact science. Um, so a, a deer, for instance, if he smells something that smells like an apple, he's going to think it's an apple. If he smells something that uh, smells like another deer's urine, it will be another deer urine. He'll, that's what he'll think it is. He's not going to necessarily be attracted by that, um, but he's going to have a familiar feeling to it. It's not going to spook him. It's going to have the attraction of, okay, I'm in a spot where other deer like to be, so I feel safer here, but they're not going to be, um, by that smell, necessarily going to be all pumped up and hyped out. Yeah, I'm going to meet another deer. I'm possibly going to breed, blah, blah, blah. That comes from a different type of, of chemical sensing. As you know, a, a deer has a, of a marinasal organ, um, which is just an add-on to a sense of smell. Okay. Uh, and some of these, some of these in the chemicals aren't, don't have to be exact either, but some of them like pheromones actually are detected by receptors more like a lock and a key. All right. It's, not, it's, it's gotta be the exact chemical or one very close, usually exact, um, that triggers the, the response. So if you have a pheromone uh, and an animal wants to breed with another animal, that pheromone has to be that exact chemical makeup or it won't fit the lock and turn mm -hmm. the key. That makes so perfect sense. Mm -hmm. and, and there's other things that go in there, you know, licking branch and all stuff. There's stuff to taste, you know, animals will taste each other's urine as gross as that sounds. And, and then there's the Fleming response where they'll take in the, the scent from really close to an animal. Some of these pheromones have to be in close proximity. They don't work for miles like, the moth pheromones. So you need to combine all these. If you want to have a great response, you have to combine all these things into the scent in a synthetic version that doesn't rot like the real version. And it has to be more stable than even the natural version. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of these pheromones are very volatile compounds. They're tiny little molecules. They're aldehydes. They're alcohols. They're made to get in the air and dissipate fast so other animals can detect them. So if you have a synthetic scent and you just put that chemical in there and you leave that bottle open for, you know, a short, even a short amount of time, that chemical can be gone pretty fast. So you have to stabilize it in the solution, maybe put a higher concentration, have it released more slowly to get the desired results you want in the end. Okay. So 
when you're when you're since we had the upcoming season, this is like perfect timing for Lucky Seven. Uh, how do you begin placing your scent out there? Do you have a strategy with the the scents you've created? Yeah, and that's another thing with with scents. Um, they're not just to attract deer. I think scents do, they do attract deer, of course, if they're made correctly and they have the correct chemical composition, Mm -hmm. but they also teach you how to communicate with deer and you learn what deer are doing out there in the woods by using the scents as you use them and try and find out where to place them and, you know, where to put your mock scrape, where to put your licking branch, where to do all these things. You're learning to be a better hunter along with using the scent it's not just the scent itself it's making you a better hunter because mm-hmm. you're learning at the same time mm-hmm. so then what then so what with, with this being the middle of july how would you begin communicating with them to like to make sure that you're getting them to come to your tree stand or ground blind but also not scaring them away because that not only do we try to learn from them but they also learn from us Correct. So one of the things I like to do is my, my I have fun almost all year round. Other when there's in here when the snow is on the ground, deer don't use scrapes very much. Um, but once the once the snow is off the ground, I immediately start with mock scraping. I'll start in even April May, um, so I can start cataloging the deer with my trail cameras at the different properties to see what's around. Okay. So I will. I have learned from using scents in the past how the deer and where the deer want to mark to communicate with each other. So what I'll do is I'll mimic that. And I may, you're not necessarily going to be able to draw a deer a huge, you know, make them go into an area he doesn't want to be into, mm-hmm. but you can draw them into some new areas that are as favorable as the one he was already using. So if you have a deer on your neighbor's property and you put in a mock scrape, he may have never come over by you before, but now he's going to come over and check out that mock scrape because he thinks you're another deer. He thinks you're, or, or multiple deer, and he okay. wants to check that mock scrape out too. So that happens all year round. Whether you see the scrape on the ground or not is, is kind of irrelevant. The urine's going to be on the ground, and mm-hmm. there's going to be a licking branch with their preorbital gland scent rubbed onto it. Okay. So then with your, so you, you actually take your scent and you spray on the branches too? then to get them to check out the a, a spot that you want them to try to increase their territory? Yeah, I do the a little bit more complicated scrapes. I do have a, uh, a Lucky 7 um, mock scrape spray, our maxed out mock scrape spray. It's okay. very simple. You just scrape up the ground, spray it out, bunch on the ground, you know, saturate the soil, and then spray a little bit on the branch. You're done. Simple. Okay. Um, I like to use my other, my other setup, which is the Lucky 7 Buck and Rut Max. Okay. And then we have a preorbital licking branch gel. It's uh, ah. just a little brush cap uh, bottle. It's got a gel formulation of the preorbital gland in it. And you brush that onto the branch. A little goes a long way kind of thing. You brush, just take that brush and brush the branch tips just like they would be licking when they're up there. Okay. You know, uh, they're very gentle in the spring this time of year. Deer aren't, you know, bucks aren't in there roughing up with their antlers right now. That would hurt them if they tried to do that. Yeah, but they they rub it around their eyes and stuff where the preorbital gland uh, fluid comes from, and they'll lick the branch and they'll you know nibble on it a little bit, and that's what this gel is simulating. It's simulating them just leaving this behind the scent communication for each other. It tells them who's in the area. They communicate with each other. It's a little social media site basically in a tree on a mm-hmm. tree branch. 
and that's what they're doing. And I start doing that early so I can see who's around. That makes a lot of sense. I like that. Cause see, I've, I never got a really like I've used sense, but like I'm an idiot when it comes down. Cause I don't, I never, I don't didn't ever go out and like search for it, but now I got, I got an asset like you, Brian, to help guys like myself. That's been hunting for years, but don't really get, uh, understand how to use it properly and to communicate with them. So that makes a little bit more sense to be able to start that early on in the season. And then do you know, since you start so early, I take it you're able to catalog all the bucks or like a good portion of them. On my particular main property that I've had for years, this is excluding the new one because I don't know much about the new one yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I have cameras out and stuff and we're, we're learning it. But on the old one, you know, I've been doing this for a while and I, and I understand them a little bit better uh, on that property. So I, I'm able to figure out using the sense where. You know, they were on neighboring properties. They wanted to go here. You learn where the bedding areas are, where the food areas are, where the bucks bed, where the does bed, and you get their meeting points is on their way to way to food. And you know, in those types of areas, even if there's not a scrape there now, that if you create a mock scrape there, you can you can actually see your deer there. So early on, I'll get bucks, um, but I that particular property is a a very it's a fawn dropping area i had two fawns born born on camera this year right oh, in front of the camera exciting. and uh the uh the does seem to and i have a lot of older does big older does they run the bucks off i don't think they want them around their fawns very early plus it is a very brushy area that i don't think the bucks want to be in there as much with their antlers not hardened up yet um so i lose my bucks you know probably not sure if i start in april may by June, I've lost contact with my bucks. Okay. But, uh, coming up the end of this month and into August, they will return with a vengeance, and that's when I will get most of my bucks cataloged. But I do want to know my fawns and the fawn health. For instance, last year we had the during fawning time, we had the really nice weather. The fawns are dropped, and three days later we got that freezing rain. Yeah. Um, that rained for days like that. We lost a lot of fawns. Oh uh, man, in my area. Uh, I would say maybe 50% of them died. Uh, we had a lot of fawns and then they, you know, we saw the does with their fawns just born one or two and, and then they had none. So I figured it was that rain. It's the only thing that really made a lot of sense this yeah. year. I've got so many fawns on camera. It's just a constant fawn parade with them out there playing around because the fawns, even after just a few days start responding to mock scrapes as well. So I got lots of pictures of fawns rubbing in the scrapes, licking at the branch, dancing around in the scrapes, playing in the scrapes. They, they get oriented to that scent pretty young. Wow. That's, that's actually quite good research for you then to be able to make sure that everything is hitting all the right, uh, all the right keynotes, especially because you, you're so in tune in their sense. So like, that's awesome. I'm glad you're able to provide that feedback to, to the audience and your, your growing group. That's going to be vital information especially when people start thinking about that earlier on in the season and then as we get closer to, to the season then like how do you uh, uh do you can do you how often do you actually scratch that how often do you maintain your mock straps do you do you touch them up every six weeks every two months what do you do it depends on the individual ones there are several mock scrapes on my property um in fact there's two really main ones in this corridor that i hunt Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my property is, is, a, is a wooded marshland 
and it starts off really brushy in the front, a little bit wet, and then it goes uphill in the back where it's just some potholes and trees. And there's an island basically in the middle of that, a long skinny island, and it becomes a travel corridor for deer. And okay. I have two maximum. One is for mostly for does. It's on the high ground. Uh, for this time of year, only the does will really show up on it. Mm-hmm. And then I have one along the edge and a little bit thicker cover, which tends to have more buck action on it because it's off the beaten path. It's not on the doe path. Those two, when I created them um, out in the middle of an open area, the one especially, there was was close. It was a nice area for them to be in, but they hadn't really made one. I trimmed up a little tree, put it in a mock scrape, and this was this is back five, six, seven years ago. They've made them their own scrapes now. I rarely refresh them. I will start when the hunting season, when I go in there in September and start hunting, I'll start freshening up. But this time of year, I have almost no need to go in there. I'll do it if I'm up there because I have a camera there. If I have to do something with the camera, okay, I'll cover my own scent, spray in the scrapes and just mm-hmm. get them back in there thinking again, there's, there's somebody new in the area. But if you find a good area and you continue these scrapes, they are often taken over by the deer and become real scrapes. They're not mock scrapes anymore. Well, that's a that's an awesome result. Is, is talk about saving you so much more time than to do that. That and now, do you pl- now since you since you got a pretty good uh, foundation with the, the 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 one you've been hunting on for years? So you, know, you said you mentioned you have a new one. Have you have you begun that pro? So how do you handle making the new new uh, scrapes on the new property? We're actually just starting to do that with the scrapes. The first thing, because I just bought it in March. Yeah. Um, it's up in northern Wisconsin. Um, a lot of bears in the area. Unfortunately, <laughs> I've been feeding them trail cams for for a few months now. Oh, um, no. I've got a little 200-pound bear that that's, uh, he's one of them little troublemakers that likes to get into everything, and he's, and he's busted a couple of cams up already. Okay. Um, but first, I just started by putting cameras in areas that I could tell from a topographical map. I can generally give you a good idea which way the deer are going. Okay. I've got agriculture on my west. Um, I have another strip of high ground that goes through. This is another marshy property. Mm-hmm. I have thick brush, and then there's a, a, a high ground that goes up and through up a big ridge, and then it goes up in the back up to a really high ridge and a hill. Um, you know, the does like to walk down that ridge and all that stuff. If they're pressured or anything, they'll, they'll mm-hmm. walk the edges of that brush. I, I know that already. Um, from putting the trail cameras out, but I didn't want to put mock scrapes out there because I didn't want to have any influence on the natural movement yet, because I don't know a hundred percent what that natural movement is. I wanted to see with the cameras, what that is. Now I know there's a spot that I have, I've had trouble getting it in because they tried to plow it and it didn't work with the first tractor. Um, I'm putting in a food plot. Okay. And there's a, there was, there was a farm there from what I'm told 50, 60 years ago, a farmhouse. And they might have plowed along what used to be a, a ditch to dry this area up. And there's a brush, brushy edge along there. And I know from experience, that's the kind of thing where they would want to scrape. So I have a camera and everything ready to go out. And our first mock scrapes are going to go out maybe this weekend, maybe the weekend after. It depends on the new guy that's going to be helping me try to plow up the food plot. Uh, and we're going to start cataloging, cataloging deer and trying to communicate with them with my synthetic sense for the first time now. Oh, that is going to be exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing the trail cam pictures show up. Then with the, uh, so how long you've, how long has lucky seven been around? It's been, uh, what, eight years now, because it's going to be our eighth season in okay. operation. Um, 
we've actually made some big advancements in the past year um, with our rut sense. I have figured out how to make what I call uh, our, our maximum pheromonal response sense using a pheromonal additive uh, that I uh, released last year, did a test run with uh, our, our Lucky 7 uh, ASS, uh, mm-hmm. Advanced Synthetic Sense, Lucky 7 mm-hmm. AS. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, with just a limited test run, it dropped a lot of a lot of deer. I did last year sell another version of that scent under a private label that I've, I've had a discontinue since then. But uh, that also had a, a phenomenal response, just a great, a huge success rate on the bucks with a very short time. We started down south in November and went through early December, and then, and then that was it because I couldn't get any more materials. Uh, and the amount of bucks they shot was, was just phenomenal, and the response we got from people using the sense was phenomenal. And uh, now this is going to be our first full year. I've actually been bottling already and selling already. I'm shocked at how much is already sold uh, of those scents, even though, you know, the rut's still a long ways away and people are buying rut scents already, but it, it made a big splash in the industry last year. And uh, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to having a full year back under my home label with, with those scents. That's exciting. So when it comes down to the rut, rut scents, when do you, when do you want to put those out then? The rut scents, as most people know already, uh, Rut scents like doe and heat. Uh, you're t- talking about the estrus scents, the doe estrus scents. Mm-hmm. If you put them out too early, you're going to scare your does. Um, a lot of us have seen that where you put out too early, you know, start uh, mid October, early October, and someone will put out some doe and heat, and the doe smells that, they're gone. And that's the last thing you want to do is chase your does off that time of year. Yes. And the reason for it is because the bucks will still respond to it, not as heavily as they might, you know couple weeks down the road but they will start responding to it and the last thing that doe wants is some young buck pestering the crud out of her and her fawn or fawns uh before she's ready to breed mm-hmm. so you know you I'm, I'm sure you've also heard too you get a, a doe out in the woods and and you she's nowhere near you she could be hundreds of yards away and you hear her snorting and blowing and snorting and blowing and snorting and blowing you usually hear that about the end of october and you're always kind of wondering, well, what's she doing? Yeah, she's probably got a young buck messing around by her that that, that thinks he's going to get lucky, but it's it's way too early yet. And and that's what you're doing when you put those rut scents out too early is, is your does are just saying, nope, don't want to be around this. If there's a doe and heat around here, I don't want to be harassed along with her and they're gone. So the best time usually mm-hmm. is whatever the peak of the rut is. In Wisconsin, I like to say the peak of the rut is usually November 7th. Mm-hmm. That's an approximation. It, it fluctuates. But what I like to do is I won't usually put out any, and now sometimes you'll see there's does that go into heat a little earlier than others. And if I recognize that's happening, I might do it a little earlier, but otherwise I start probably about two, two and a half weeks before the peak of the rut is when I'll start using the, the estrus scents. Okay. And you said you also have a dominant buck scent. How do you strategize that? When do you place that out there in the field? The buck and rut max is a dominant buck scent, but bucks don't really change that much you know the hormones they produce more glandular sense but it's the same as they produce all year round they're not producing okay. anything different like a doe is so if you use buck and rut max early you just use a little bit less of it and it and it fits right in when you start getting into those rut phases i will start using more of the scent but i won't necessarily have to change the scent now when do you where do you uh 
like spray the scent at? Do you put it on your clothing? Do you put it on specific spots on trees? Like how do you place it out there on your uh, properties? I, I am personally a big fan of, of mock scraping, even during the season. So let's say I'm going into a rut. I've usually already have some mock scrapes out and some of them have some activity. Okay. And I often have a camera over them and I, and I know there's a buck utilizing them. That well, that's scrape, what you, so that's what you typically primarily use them for is just those mock scrapes and keeping them refreshed. Yeah. And when the rut comes up, and I know there's a buck been visiting that mock scrape. Then I will start changing into a rut scrape. I'll start using the rut based sense. Um, like doe estrus, I'll put this, I'll continue to put the buck scent on the ground to spray it and saturate the area. The doe scent, I like to put on a felt pad hung over the scrape. I like to take estrus scents in and out with me. I don't like to leave them. Maybe a drop or two in the scrape when I leave just to kind of tease the buck that I've been there. Oh, okay. But I leave them on a scent pad and hang them over the scrape, uh, those rut scents normally, because I want to take them out when I'm gone and I want them there be there when I'm there. So the buck doesn't try to come visit them in the middle of the night. You know, bucks are wary creatures. If they think they can visit this doe in the middle of the night, they'll sneak in there and do that. If she's only appearing during the day, you know what they think she's only appearing today i want them to show up in daylight so i get a crack at them that makes perfect sense i wouldn't want to want to want to drive nocturnal that's that's a really good insight right there for that right there and now do you, do you use um uh the bedding sense too as well i know several companies have come out with these over the years where you put them in their the scent inside their bed has do you guys do that too as well um we do a different one um you know i I have never really analyzed any of the bedding scents, and there's not really much for synthetics, I don't think, out there. Um, they, from what I've understood, they use chopped up bedding, and, and some of the those scents are, are banned along with urine because they come from natural deer products and probably have some urine in the bedding and stuff. And then I know some other ones I was told they're actually made by boiling the, the hair off deer hides. So I, whether that's true or not, I, I can't tell you 100%, but it, I've smelled them. It certainly smells like a deer. Um, so we do have a bedding scent, but uh, we the one we have is Deer Herd Calm, Lucky 7 Deer Herd Calm, which is based off of urine. You know, it's just a, a strictly a, a natural deer urine smell about as, as plain as it can be, the average deer herd smell. And that's used just to make, again, to just say, look, this deer in the area, deer like to be here. They're obviously either bedding or feeding here because they're depositing a lot of urine. Um, we have another what I like to call comfort sense, which is nanny dough. Okay. And that is, uh, you know, I was talking about that dough earlier that likes to blow. And we've all had that one too, where every time she comes near your stand, somehow she knows you're up there and she's blowing and blowing and blowing. Yeah. Uh, they call them nanny doughs. So we created a scent that smells like an older nanny dough. It's the dough urine and basic deer smell. Um, you know, when, when you're down gutting a deer and that you got that hair smell, you know, that distinctive white tail odor. Yes. So what is that what talking about? Yeah, that's what's in the nanny dough. And we also make that in a light version in a spray um, to cover decoys. So if you have a deer decoy, um, we have what we call decoy dope that makes a, a, a deer decoy smell like a living deer because deer want other deer to smell like deer. <laughs> yes. You know, you've all seen that too, where people are hunting with a, with a decoy and that buck comes up and he's looking, he's looking, he's looking, he gets close sniffs that decoy and he is gone he just about turns inside out and that's be not necessarily because he caught a bad odor on there he didn't smell gasoline or human odor necessarily 
it didn't smell like anything is just as bad as smelling like something bad in those cases. So when he didn't smell what he expected, he, he got the heck out of there. So we make that product too, which technically also makes a very good cover scent as well. That makes sense. So then with the, the calming element, what does the, what does that do for the deer then when you're, when you're uh, dispersing that out there in the field? They just feel safe in the area. It smells okay. like a little bit of deer. It's got a, a little bit of secret sauce in there to, to keep deer calm. And they just respond to it by thinking, okay, I'm in a spot that other deer have been a lot. Um, and recently and old, because this deer herd calm technically is a combination of fresh and old urine too. It is, okay. uh, it, 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 it purposely kind of smells like stale urine because in an area where deer frequent, of course, there's stale urine in the area too. So it, it just gives them that calming effect. They feel like they are somewhere that they belong and that other deer want to be that keeps them calmer. So then do you put that directly in the bed or do you put that near an area? Like I'm that's something that I've seen, but I don't know how you'd apply it to the area you're hunting. The deer comb itself, the deer herd comb, um, we kind of use it as an attractant and cover scent. We'll just spray some on some surrounding brush near deer beds. You know, if you're, I tend not to hunt right in the deer beds, but along the trails and stuff. And on this ridge, especially in the winter, sometimes deer will bed out on there. So they, cause they like to sit out in the sun, you know, they on mm -hmm. the south side of that ridge, staying warm. And uh, so you just spray some of that into the area brush and, and maybe even uh, put some out on the brush as you're walking in to cover your scent. We also make another one called white tailed deer tracks, which is an interdigital scent, you know, from the interdigital gland between their hooves. Um, that I like to put on a scent pad on my boots when I walk in because it'll cover up your scent and also deer will actually follow the, the tracks of another deer. So it'll bring deer to you. They'll actually follow your, your trail into the woods. Okay. Yeah. Cause I've done the, 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 the drag behind me. It's like, I've never had any success with it. So it's like, I stopped doing it. So it's like, that makes a little bit more sense because this way then it's not as evasive. And plus it gives them that, that curiosity to see where it leads them. Yep. And all these glands are sensing, you know, in like the mock scrape sprays, you know, there's, there's some interdigital in the mock scrape sprays because they'd expect to smell that in a scrape. Mm -hmm. And they're all just different tools. Not, not every tool is right for everybody in the way they hunt. Um, if you're walking, just walking across a cornfield, getting a near stand or whatever, there's no reason for you to drag interdigital scent across there what for you know no deer is going to follow you across you know from your farmhouse to the to the stand across the field through the middle of the bean field that's um, very true so a lot of our so we have a lot of different sense of people ask why do you have so many different ones because you got to find the one that fits the way you hunt you know um i use like i said earlier i use mock uh, our basically i use our buck and rut max and preorbital gel a lot for scrapes but there's people that pack into remote areas or they make a ton of scrapes in one day trying to catalog deer across different areas mm -hmm. have a lot of trail cams you know uh a lot of the guys that uh are outfitters they some of them make a ton of scrapes have a ton of cameras so they prefer the maxed out mock scrape spray you know big eight ounce bottle with a big you know mini trigger sprayer in the top so they can make them fast and and only have to carry one scent out with them we, we have a lot of different stuff and it it, it it's not every scent is meant for everybody and uh, you know what works for you works for you and what doesn't work for you doesn't work for you and you kind of match we have enough stuff out there to match what pretty much most people are wanting to do that want to use scents and you know, there's a lot of people out there that don't want to use scents and, and and that's fine too some people have been successful without them 
Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, especially like when they've got the folks that use uh, public land and such. Now, with your group, I want to talk about that group. Do you guys provide like your this with your the 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 admins and such? If somebody were to post like a topographical map or something that to resemble where they're hunting, do you guys help them break down that property to figure like what would make sense in the catalog of sense you guys carry? Yeah, we've actually had people do that. Um, I've actually posted topographical maps of my properties and showed people what I do. And there are people that, you know, I've asked about sense and stuff and we will ask you, hey, you got a map of your property. Maybe we can help you. You know, I know someone now that's got a property that uh, is very difficult to hunt. He knows where the bucks are on a adjoining property, but can't get them over by him. So I, I'll often give advice. Now, by you, it's free advice. So it's, you know, it's worth every penny for sure <laughs> that it costs you. But, you know, there's things you can do if, if you've got bucks working north of you and you've got a good uh, tree line along a marsh south of you, put some mock scrapes in there and see if you can't track those bucks across there and see if you can get them to check in those scrapes every day. It's, it's a lot better than watching them, you know, from 400 yards away across a bean field where you can't shoot at them. That's very valid, right? There. Well, at least you can provide them some insight there. You know, I know I have a friend of mine, Ryan Nordahl. He does um, Epic Whitetail Habitat. And he likes to sit down with folks and provide his, his free his free um, perspective because he's also charges to come out there and uh, groom the property to make sense. This way, you have a chance to shoot some. But yeah, I like that uh, being able to provide that value to somebody being a group because there's so many groups out there. It's like you got to set yourself apart. Yeah, and, that, and that's what we're all about. Uh, we're trying to, you know, there's a lot of different face group book groups out there, and and we're trying to, you know, fit in our own niche, and but we're also trying to be something that some of the other groups aren't. You know, some of them are nothing but uh, arguing back and forth about you know the cross pole guy versus the compound guy and all that. We're more of a all inclusive. You know, I, I don't care if you shoot them with a slingshot. <laughs> you know, if that's what you want to do, we're fine with it. Uh, as long as anything that's legal, you can do it. The atlatl guys, hey, yeah, come on over. We're, we're not going to argue with you. And we're trying to provide something valuable, too. At the same time, people that want to learn about sense can come there and learn about sense. We're on other, you know, I, I hate to say this, kind of, it's kind of a, a downer, but, you know, sometimes I'll try to help somebody with something about sense, and then you'll get all the guys that are out there that, oh, sense never work. That doesn't work. You can't use them, blah, blah, blah. I guess they're not wrong because there's a lot of garbage on the market that'll probably spook deer before it'll ever attract them. Um, but it's hard to have a useful conversation with your original person when you got a naysayer in there, you know, arguing everything you say and you, you, to the point that it just breaks down into a name calling match. So we're more about uh, letting everybody speak, letting everybody have their peace. And uh, technically, if you want to argue about, you know, the only way to do it is to play the wind. You can't scent, kill scent, all that stuff. We're probably not the group for you. We'll, we'll be the first one to admit that. Mm -hmm. Well, this nice thing is too, when you have somebody that has a legitimate question, you start relating through the comments, like this does not make any sense. You just, you can flat out just like DM them. It's like, Hey, why don't we talk off of this? So this way I can give you some insight. And then if you guys down the road, if you guys get to the point where you want to provide a paying service, like, uh, 
um, mock scrapes a 401 you can do a patreon patreon as a co- as a product where you can pay for a subscription but you can put in video content podcast content video or pictures and stuff so this way then it, it gives them the incentive like this shows them the value of being behind it and then with with your successes and such and everybody else that's in there it just adds to more value to the product lines this way then if you're if you got a guy out in Arizona all the way to a guy to Maine. Like this is, we're here to help you out. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those fine balance things. It, it really is. You've got to kind of know who you're catering to. Um, I don't know if we'll ever do a pay service or something like that, but it, it, I know people that have, you know, there was a whitetail Institute out there for a while that was, was teaching people how to to be better deer hunters. Um, we're just trying to, and it's not even necessarily my products. I mean, anyone that's, uh, you know, I sell uh, products, but I also support the other guys that sell products, the other good companies that are out there, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, Robbie Nickman there from the mix does deer minerals and deer feed. And he's a great guy. And I, I've used his product as a great product. And, and if you want to talk about it on that site, Hey, good, good. I, 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 that's great. I, I'd love to help out other small companies. If you want to talk about someone else's scent product, I'm fine with that too. I'm not going to, kick off you know it's not a company site i, I want to talk about all sense out there yeah exactly all uh, experiences too because you know like mm-hmm. you said before there's guys that don't like sense you know there's the other one you hear all the time that'll get on there oh don't bother buying scent you know uh you can just pee in your own scrape and 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 bucks will react to it and you know that, that that's not necessarily untrue even if i don't agree with the practice you know deer are higher animals you know, and mm-hmm. in lower level animals, you know, again, to detect chemicals, um, there's a, a thing in, a, in an animal that's called a, a trace amine associated receptor. Okay. TAR. Uh, and in particular, TAR4 is a, a receptor that um, it, it detects a chemical that's called uh, 2 phenylethylamine, uh, butchered my pronunciation there probably, which is a, a metabolite from from carnivores when they eat protein you get that chemical in your urine okay and lower animals mice and stuff and and, and deer have it uh those re- or these parts of them those receptors to detect that chemical and then some of the lower organisms like a mouse if he smells that chemical from that smells like a meat eater's urine mm-hmm. they have an instinctive response to it the flea i mean they're gone and and that's that's, that's proven science that's not just you know, observation or anything that this has been well observed and, and, and worked with, um, deer are a little bit different animal. They could may very well detect that scent of a meat eater, you know, Fox like to urinate in deer scrapes all the time for some reason. And I'm sure the deer can detect that that's a meat eater. Do they react by fleeing? Well, no, of course not. Cause a deer, every time, if it ran into a predator smell, every time, especially in an area with a lot of people and dogs mm-hmm. and coyotes yeah. and it would spend its life running around in circles. It'd never be able to stop if it was all it was doing. So deer are curious animals. They will de- examine human urine at times. A lot of mm-hmm. times when those people say that you'll get, you'll see their deer camera and you'll notice it's in the middle of the night, it's midnight and the deer looks a little squirrely, you know, he's got his neck stretched out and even bad deer sense companies stuff. You know, you'll see that the neck all stretched out sniffing these from a distance he scrapes but they eventually get curious enough to check it out and they're gonna yeah so can i say somebody didn't shoot a buck after peeing in a scrape oh that buck you know he may be used to human urine didn't figure it out 
but I can show you just as many trail camera videos of deer just about turning themselves inside out after smelling human urine and disappearing. Uh-huh. And and a big buck, if he if he was scared a hundred yards away from smelling your urine from a distance and you never saw him, how do you know you scared him? Uh, good I, point. I guess it boils down to if you're gonna pee in your scrape, I can't I can tell you one thing. The deer knows a predator did it. He knows a human did it. Mm-hmm. What his reaction is necessarily going to be, I can't predict. But too often, it's a negative reaction, and I, I just don't want to let him know I was even there. I agree. That's why I always take a uh, Gatorade bottle. This just it's, it's the easiest way to to make sure you walk out with walk in and walk out with no leaving, trying to leave as mu- little as your scent as possible around. You know, the weird thing about that Gatorade bottle trick, though, is like you bring it in and you drink the Gatorade, the 32-ounce Gatorade, you drink it, but yeah. you will overfill that bottle before you leave <laughs> that stand. It's not the same amount going in and out on that, that trick. Uh, you don't knock on what I've, I haven't overfilled one yet, but it's like, you know, I bet it's going to happen sooner than, than later now. I just think I just jinxed myself. <laughs> and then what's the what's some of the best ways to find your product? I mean, I'm sure you guys have a .com. And the, the best one is the easiest one to remember is lucky7cents.com. Okay. Um, we also have Nelson Creek Outdoors.com. Um, and you can reach the other store. It, it's basically the same store. There's two different designs of it. I'm, I, I went by Nelson Creek Outdoors for a long time, but I am slowly transitioning to the Lucky Seven Cents name. Um, because of the confusion, people think I'm an outfitter or something else. That's what I was going to ask you too. Cause when I saw the outdoors, like, well, are you guys an outfitter by chance, but now it's like, it just kind of just worked with the branding. And now it's like, you need to, we want to move forward and moving everything centralized to that lucky seven. Yeah. Like I said, I work with the science and stuff. I'm, I'm not necessarily the world's greatest marketer. <laughs> That's understandable. So how did you come up with lucky seven then for the name of the business? It was named after a buck. We had a buck when we were doing this, and he was a seven-point buck, and and he evaded us. We we tried to shoot this deer. This was years ago, and uh, a couple of us were had him on our hit list, and and I don't ever know what happened to him. Finally, he just I don't know if he didn't make it through the winter, didn't make it through the rut, whatever it was, hit by a car, who knows? But we chased that deer for years, and he was he was we called him Old Lucky Seven because he was a seven pointer, and <laughs> that's where actually where the name came from. Well, that's a that's a nice story because I, I have a if you had your video on, you'd see behind me I have my seven point buck too. But he was you know, I call I nicknamed I, we dubbed him Captain Hook because one of his brow times just curls come straight up and then it just goes a ninety degree angle backwards. It's like, well, he is going to be Captain Hook from there, man. This has been a lot of insightful information for people to, to to digest and be able to figure out a good strategy and also to utilize your group to make sure that they're they're utilizing your product any product the best fits their their hunting strategy because like you mentioned several times you got to go with what works for your area not what somebody's doing in iowa or missouri or kansas yeah definitely and i just want to throw out my my quick big pitch here um, one of the new things we came out with here, um, I do have another brand called uh, Whitetail Alchemy, and we have our liquid ozone uh, scent eliminator concentrate that I just released for sale. Was it yesterday, the day before, or something like that? Uh, developed it. It's a little two ounce bottle of concentrate, uh, $6.89. You uh, get yourself a gallon of distilled water, take a two ounce swig out of there to make room dump the bottle of uh, concentrate into the distilled water, shake it up, 
And uh, for a total cost under eight bucks, you have a gallon of really effective scent eliminating spray. Uh, put it in your own little spray bottle. Everybody's got one of those. You can find one at Walmart for a buck and uh, just keep reusing it. And it, it's going to be very cost effective and very effective from my odor elimination standpoint as well. Yeah. I went to this past season to, uh, to Wisconsin deer and Turkey expo there. And they were talking about, I was talking to a guy that has a similar company that has a similar product line as your, with the, with the one you just dropped about said an eliminator. And I was talking to him about um, uh, a nose jam or stuff like that. And he brought up a good point about like, as soon as you shoot that one animal, they're going to forever associate you with that scent. So, so you come back out there using that same scent, you may never, you'll, you'll, you'll never have the same luck again. So it's like actually put some food for thought, like, well, that actually makes a lot of sense because I don't want them to remember me. I want them to forget about me. So the same the next time I can walk right back and sit down and shoot another one. Yeah, the scent, uh, probably the nose jammer, I believe is vanilla. Uh, yes, but it's like you we, we actually make a vanilla product ourselves, and that's kind of an interesting story. One of the reasons vanilla works so well is remember earlier we were talking about how how some smells are just smells and other ones are a lock and a key. Yes, vanilla is a key that almost fits the right lock in deer, but not quite. And that's why deer are attracted to vanilla. It's not really a food based thing. It's a uh, it's it's the actual chemical composition reminds them of something else. I wonder what it is though, because it's kind of got myself peaked about that too. Because is because like I've heard hunters been using this since the '60s and '70s, and it's like wonder what in in nature gives them that sense of vanilla is like. I want to find out more. Yeah, there's uh, you know it's part of the semiochemical communication things. You know there are other there are other chemicals deer emit that that smell like vanilla, and that and that happens every once in a while. Another similar one is people wonder why why garlic attracts fish why would garlic attract fish it's almost the same thing it's another key that tweaks the lock a little bit kind of, kind of turns the cylinder you may have to jiggle it back and forth but a lot of, especially on instinctive animals like fish okay um, if you present them a chemical signal that triggers them well it didn't trigger them to for fear it didn't trigger them to reproduce there's really only one thing left and that's eat yeah, yeah, exactly. Garlic is is uh, a good attractant for fish. It, there are there are chemicals that are close enough to fit the locks. Some things to get some weird responses. You know, uh, there's another funny one is uh, you can take uh, uh, you get what's called an intermone effect. Um, uh, pheromones in pigs uh, that that make female pigs want to breed actually will make dogs really calm why interesting it's a weird inner bone effect that obviously is close to something that should trigger dogs and but when you 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 know and they they actually use it uh i believe there's even a patent out there for it uh where you uh use that pheromone the hog pheromone and they put in a spray for uh helping the train dogs did not know that the garlic one was a new one for me because like i fished an awful lot and it's like I didn't know about garlic. It's like, I wonder if you spread a little bit of live bait and give them get a nice, uh, you know, higher strike rate. And all this stuff exists. I mean, there's so many different chemicals that are even known to be pheromones. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them are very simple chemicals. One chemical, you know, it's not even a mix of them, but some of them are pheromones are actually proteins and complex mixtures. And there's so much out there that we don't know that it, it's, it's, 
when you think about it, it's kind of bound to happen that you're going to get these intermone effects where one species, mm-hmm. you know, there's there, another interesting one is ticks. Um, there's a couple different species of ticks that share the same pheromone chemical, but they almost never interbreed. Um, that they're using the same chemical. One puts it out at about a uh, hundred times the strength of the other. Okay. Um, the one that puts it out at the higher strength is unable mm-hmm. to detect it at the low levels in the other species of tick. And the one with the low output, when he senses the higher output, he's actually mm-hmm. repelled by the higher level of that chemical. So it's the same exact chemical, just different levels. Uh, but there's two ticks using the same chemical, but just because it's at different levels, that's enough to keep them from, you know, intermixing. Interesting. It's a, a fascinating topic. Yeah. So wonder what the ticks do use that scent for. Is it a defense mechanism or to mate or? It's to mate. And ticks, oddly enough, have a, a very complex uh, uh, pheromone and, and semi-chemical communications. They're just, you know, individual animals. There's ticks are like that. Hamsters are like that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, one brings the male to the hamster. Another one mm-hmm. makes them sniffer. Another one makes them sniffer somewhere else. And the last yeah. one makes them mounter. And, it, and it, it's a cluster of chemicals that create all these actions. There is even... Uh, Another one with ticks, the one of the pheromones and ticks actually isn't made by the tick. It's taken from the blood of the host. Okay. And she uses it as a pheromone to initially attract the male over to her. And then from there, there's another pheromone when he examines her. It, it, it's, some of them are very complex. Some are very simple, like the moth. You know, she releases one chemical mm-hmm. and the males will come from 9,000 miles away to find her. Other ones are just elaborate chemical mechanisms that uh, you know science has yet to to completely pull apart because there's a lot of them when you start how you find a pheromone by fractioning compounds and stuff it's a lot of work and and you know if you're talking about something with multiple compounds to it it just becomes such a mathematical improbability that you're going to succeed in in finding it especially at the tiny little uh-huh. nanograms of of compounds we're talking about there's so much out there that you, you don't know about. And then there's other things you're going to run into accidentally. Man, Brian, this has been a, just a wealth of information you dropped on us. Like this is really exciting. I'm looking forward to Pete, listen to uh, folks' responses to this episode here, but anything up and coming for this upcoming season that we should be on the lookout for. No, this year it's going to be the, the fair maximum pheromonal response sense. Um, okay. Lucky seven ASS and uh, lucky seven, the juice. They are similar sense. They both use uh, the the pheromonal additives to really get uh, aggressive responses for bucks. One simulates a doe that has just become ready to breed. Mm-hmm. The other one, that's ASS. The other one, the juice, is actually a doe that's already been breeding. And, uh, you know, okay. Okay. rile the buck up. He knows there's an interloper in there, and he knows he's probably already missed the chance to father one of the fawns, you know. Often a doe has two, mm-hmm. three fawns. They may have two, three fathers. So, True. you know, that, that puts in a, a little urgency in him to try and, you know, he's sure you've been bred once. I need, I need to get my genes passed in there. I'm going to lose the chance. So there's those scents are coming out. And that, mm-hmm. that's really the big one for the year. And then, like I said, our, our, uh, our concentrate, our, our scent eliminator concentrate liquid ozone. That's, uh, where else are you going to make a gallon of spray for for under eight bucks and it's very effective it, it, it's going to be big 
Yes, I think so too. Because I think some of them ones that have that type of combination where you put the the like a pill or liquid or something like that are averaging like twenty to twenty five dollars for the price point on it. Yeah, this is it's inexpensive and effective, and and you know it's kind of what my goal was in this one. Um, you know, I'm just I'm just a little guy playing around with chemistry here. You know, <laughs> but uh, I don't have the marketing dollars on stuff behind me. But I do, I do know what it's like to want to have affordable products. There's so much out there that costs a ton of money in this sport. Yes. It's kind of nice once in a while to be able to spend a couple of bucks and get something great. That's exactly right. And I think that's, what's going to really bring your company into the limelight is like that you're delivering a high quality product for a low price point, a cost point. So this is fantastic information. And I'll put this information in the show notes folks. So this way, then you can be able to click on the links and go check them out and then get yourself ready for the upcoming season. But make sure you go join uh mock scrapes one once this way you can learn more and pick the brains of some fantastic experts here. Well, thank you, Mr. Sparks for coming on the podcast. This was fantastic. I appreciate you having me. I, I, I enjoy doing these, but I don't get to do them very often. That's for sure. Excellent. You're well, Thank you. I appreciate it, Jeff. I do. You're welcome.